0: Well, I thank Cato for having this wonderful forum and for the diversity on this panel, which I think you'll learn about firsthand in just a moment, and also for something that I don't think anyone mentioned yet, and this is a wonderful background paper uh, that Michael Tanner and Charles Hughes did, The War on Poverty Turns 50, Are We Winning Yet?, which I think you'll find, if you read, it is extremely balanced and quite fascinating. The question before this panel is, 50 years of war on poverty, success, failure, or incomplete, Uh, and we have, as I say, a very diverse (laughs) panel that will, I'm sure, have quite uh, different answers to that question. Let me just put a few facts on the table first, Uh, one of which, is this thing gonna start, someone gonna, I heard something. Ready to go, okay, good, all right. So the first fact on the table is when Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty, we had we were spending something on the order in current dollars of about maybe around 50 billion. The records aren't great, but around 50 billion. Um, now we spend, if you count federal and state spending on means-tested programs, we spend about a trillion dollars a year on these means-tested programs. Uh, the big ones, of course, spend the most. Like Medicaid is a is the, major- is, a, is the biggest single program, but we spent a lot on food stamps, we spent a huge amount on earned income tax credit, and so forth. So we spent about a trillion dollars, and there are 84 at least major programs. Um, most of them created since the War on Poverty began, and many of them created after the War on Poverty. So Lyndon Johnson and the War on Poverty might, might have gotten the ball rolling, but the, the programs were not created then. So we have this panel here to address it uh, and let me just say one word about the members of the panel and I think it's a bad idea to spend a lot of time introducing panel members. Uh, first is Michael Tanner, of course, that I've already talked about who uh, wrote this brief. He's widely known for his writing on poverty but especially uh, on health care, and recently has edited a book on Obamacare which I understand is quite good. I have not read it. Uh, Angela Glover-Blackwell is a founder and president of PolicyLink. Which, by any method of measuring, is one of the most effective anti-poverty and equality organizations in the country. It has a sterling reputation and does wonderful work, thanks in large part to Angela, and then Christopher we- uh, uh, Wimmer, who is the co-director of the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia. He, it's a very well-known center, and he does seminal work on anti-poverty, especially a study on longitudinal uh, longitudinal study of well-being here in New York City. Uh, and finally, Robert Dorr, who's the Mortgage Fellow in Poverty Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a former commissioner uh, of uh, uh, social uh, social programs here in New York City, the largest municipal uh, social services department in the United States. Um, and Robert uh, recently went to uh, to the American Enterprise Institute. Here's our agenda. I'm going to make a few remarks at the beginning. Each panelist will then have 12 minutes, and panelists will be somebody flashing cards at the beginning, and they're little trap seats right where you're sitting. So when you get about 12 minutes and 15 seconds, you will disappear immediately. So keep that in mind. Uh, then when they finish, I'm going to ask the panelists a few questions. Then we'll take a few questions from the audience. We'll end. We're supposed to end promptly at 10:45, but that's going to throw our time off a bit. I don't want to planners at the conference are going to do about that, but we certainly do not want to miss even one minute of our break, so we will try to be as punctual as possible. All right, so here's what I would like to, I I go for complexity. So increasing low-wage work plus work support benefits, which I'll talk about in a minute, equals reduced poverty. There are two ways that we have reduced poverty in the United States that have been successful. One is very sophisticated strategy. We gave people money. It's called Social Security. Poverty among the elderly has plummeted. There are many studies that show that about 90% of that decline is due to social security. So that wasn't, that, that's one way we did it. And this is the other way, which was surprisingly effective. We encouraged low wage work, which was has been trashed over and over again. Look at the congressional record and debates in Congress about horrible hamburger flipping jobs and so forth. Well, we did it anyway, and a lot of mothers McWhorter was absolutely right about that. A lot of mothers went out and got jobs, but that was only half of it. We also subsidized their work, mainly with benefits they could only get if they worked, so the benefits themselves encouraged work. So here is the way it happened. This is uh, employment uh, of all single mothers, the top line, and of never married mothers. The never married mothers, the ones that McWhorter talked about, are the most likely to be poor, the least likely to have a good education, the least likely to have job skills, and the least likely to work. And yet, as you can see, I don't know if this is, whoop, uh, as you can see in the mid-90s, there was a huge increase. There's nothing like this in Bureau of Labor Statistics, records. 40% increase in employment among single moms. This is roughly during the uh, period of welfare reform. That legislation was passed in '96, And that has pretty much been maintained. There's been some decline uh because primarily because of recessions but it's slightly recovering so maybe we can be encouraged that it'll reach its uh, it'll continue to increase in the future uh and then secondly the work support system that i talked about so these there's something here for both the left and the right and i think when the left realized this they they agreed to welfare reform and welfare reform passed in 96 signed by a democratic president and half of the members of Congress, half the Democrats in Congress voted for the re- reform. The bipartisan vote for welfare reform that had very strong work requirements was greater than the bipartisan vote vote for Medicaid and Medicare. So there was a, a lot of agreement after a very ugly debate, but a lot of agreement that work was the way to go. And so we have this work support system, earned income tax credit, additional child tax credit, you can only get those if you, they're based on earnings, so you can't get them unless you work. Uh, SNAP, the food stamp program that Michael's written so often about, child care, Head Start, state pre-K. We have a whole uh, range of programs that provide child care. We still don't provide child care to all low-income mothers, but we have a lot of child care, and there was more money put in the welfare reform legislation, and it's been expanded several times since, and then a whole range of other programs, especially now child, uh, health insurance for children. Virtually every kid under 200% of poverty in the United States is covered now, which was not true in '96 and not true before that. And here is the way the system works. So this is, if you look at the very top line, you can call that Darwin's line. It's life in the state of nature. This is poverty among single moms and their children, single moms with children. And you can see every year, it's very, very high. It went down, it came back up. Uh, And as you can see there, this is the effect of earnings. The very first line, that's earnings. So life in the state of nature, if you look at the end of that line, About half of these families would be poor if it were not, despite the fact that many of them work. And now we start adding benefits. First, uh, the next line is adding cash benefits. That's essentially the official definition of poverty, which is a horrible definition. I hope we talk about that a little bit. It declines some, but it's still 38%. Then when we add food stamps, it comes down. Then when we add the EITC and the additional child tax credit and subtract Taxes that people have to pay, it comes down again. And then if we add the income of other people in the household, it comes down again. So our system of reducing poverty among single moms, uh, many of whom work at low-wage jobs, uh, is to increase their work effort, as you saw in the previous chart, and then to subsidize the earnings. And that too has resulted in very substantial reductions in child poverty. By 2000, we had the lowest Child poverty rate among Black kids, among Hispanic kids, and among kids in single-parent families that we've ever had—it went up because of the recessions of 2001, 2007, but now it's coming back down again. It's still lower than it was uh, in the in the early 1990s. So we can say that this strategy of doing everything possible to encourage work—some people would say force work. And subsidizing earnings has worked well to reduce poverty. People could still argue we spent too much, we shouldn't do it this way, but this does reduce poverty. Now, there are other effects, some of which, especially people on the left, have, uh, have uh, thought was not a good outcome, and that's certainly true. For example, deep poverty has increased somewhat, because some, some of the mothers have not learned to work, they lose jobs, they have a number of problems, so this does not work for everybody, but it works on average. Social science and I would argue public policy are about averages and it works on average. All right, so with that on the table, we're gonna start with our panel now and the first speaker will be uh, Michael Tanner, then Angela, then Chris, then Robert Dorr.
1: Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate your coming out this morning uh, to talk about this. Uh, and I appreciate very much uh, Columbia and the folks at Cato and who have all helped make this possible, the uh, conference staff and John Allison and Freda and so on. I want to make sure I thank all of you. Uh, about six weeks ago, I guess it was now, President Obama delivered his State of the Union Address. And while he was talking uh, in the State of the Union address, he was addressing his Cuba policy, his plans to open up more to Cuba and the embargo and so on, a, a proposal that I strongly support. Uh, but as part of that explanation for that, he said, look, if you've been trying something for 50 years and it hasn't worked, maybe it's time to try something new. And I thought, gee, there's a whole bunch of government programs that that might apply to. Uh, And one of these I would address is the war on poverty. I think one of the things I wanted to stress at the very beginning of this is just how big the war on poverty is. I think most people, we hear a lot of rhetoric in this country about how uh, we don't spend very much on poverty and when it really comes to, to helping the poor, how cheap we are as a nation and they look to countries in Europe and so on, they say the United States really doesn't try to help poor people. But the reality is the war on poverty is pretty big. Uh, There's 126 federal anti-poverty programs. And to define an anti-poverty program, I use one of two definitions. Either it's a means-tested program, which by definition means it goes to lower income people, or it's a program that says in the definition of the program itself, this is an anti-poverty program or this is designed to fight poverty, something along those lines. If you you have those sort of definitions, you have 126 federal programs. Nine different cabinet departments and six independent agencies oversee at least one anti-poverty program. Roughly 72 of these are either cash or in-kind benefits. They give benefits directly to individuals in some way. Uh, the others are large, more community-based uh, things like community development block grants, and so on. That go to go to low-income areas rather than to specific individuals. And every year, we spend hello uh, close to a trillion dollars, as you heard, on these programs. The federal government alone spent six hundred and eighty-nine billion dollars last year financing these programs, and state and local governments contribute another two hundred and ninety-two billion dollars. So we're up to a trillion dollars just under that, which is real money. So it's hard to see that we're not spending money fighting poverty. Now we really should keep this in perspective because this is not just about money being spent. And if you really want to get into where, you know, we spend money in Washington, uh, you know, the money we spend on poverty, as real as it is, pales in comparison to the amount of welfare we spend on senior citizens in terms of Social Security and Medicare over and above what they pay in to the programs. Uh, There's a huge amount of of poverty for the relatively affluent uh, elderly. Uh, Corporate welfare is a substantial amount, uh, over $100 billion, according to Cato's estimates, all of which uh, should be done away with. And then, of course, there's welfare tucked into the, the military and defense and homeland security budgets. Uh, We don't know exactly how much it is. It's hard to tease it out exactly how much it is, but we certainly know there's there's some there. So if we're going to get upset just about spending only, then welfare is probably not the place we should be the most upset. There's certainly enough uh, waste and fraud and mismanagement and simply programs that shouldn't exist to go around uh, without getting into that. Still, if you're spending a trillion dollars, you should expect to get something out of it, something in return for it. I mean, we are, after all, if you simply broke that down and divided the amount we're spending by the number of people who live in poverty, we're spending over $21,000 for every poor man, woman, and child in America. Now, when you figure that the poverty rate is just a little under $12,000 for a single person, you could theoretically write a check for $12,000 to every poor person in America, wipe out poverty, and save yourself some $10,000 or so. Uh, But obviously, for all that money we're spending, poverty still exists. So we're not necessarily getting a real big bang for our buck. Uh, In fact, if you want to look at total welfare spending, going back uh, into the, uh, we we started around 73, which is after most of these programs have had a chance to kick in. You could take it back a little bit further. Uh, But you look at the growth in these programs, and what you see is fairly substantial growth. Uh, In fact, using constant 2014 dollars, we've spent since 1965 roughly 22 trillion dollars fighting poverty in constant dollars. So the question is, what are we exactly getting for that? Uh, If you want to look at poverty rates, this is using the standard, uh, the Census Bureau poverty rate and we'll talk about that in a minute. But But what you see is that prior to 1965, poverty rates were coming down substantially that when we didn't have a war on poverty, poverty was still going down. We were reducing poverty uh, without uh, 126 different programs. And that continues down until around the mid-early 1970s, and then it sort of flattens out. And what we see is that it stays pretty constant from that period on to now. now. So you can look at this, and you can track that against spending. Uh, The uh, blue line is the poverty rate, and the red and green lines uh... represent total spending and federal spending only and what you see is that there's an enormous increase in spending on a yearly basis we're spending more and more money every year but the poverty rate seems pretty constant despite what we're spending and you would look at this and you would say well it suggests we're not getting a whole lot for our money now one big caveat to this what i was using there as i said was the census bureau's official poverty measure And almost everybody in Washington, regardless of your political persuasion, agrees that that is a pretty lousy measure of poverty. I think everybody in this panel is going to agree with that. Uh, There's been some pretty good work done on this. Uh, Dr. Dr. Weimer and others have done some really good work on coming up with alternative poverty measures. Uh, I think one of the better ones is done by Meyer and Sullivan in a paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research uh... and this one shows that if you actually look at if you sort of take poverty measures that take into account taxes and transfers and things like that what you actually find was there was a significant decline in poverty during the first ten years or so of the war on poverty and then it sort of begins you know you get a sort of a level out then you get another drop around the time welfare reform kicked in and then you begin to get another leveling out of this. But it doesn't appear after, from about the mid-1980s, at least on, that you're seeing, when you're seeing this massive increase in spending, that you're getting a lot of incremental increase for this. I would also suggest, if you go back to that early decrease, around the first 10 years of the War on Poverty, it's very hard to trace this directly to the War on Poverty programs. What you find is there's a number of other factors going on around the same time which have a significant impact. For example, you had the 1965 Civil Rights Act. And what you find is that as a result of the Civil Rights Act, you find African Americans moving into more into the mainstream of economic life during the 1960s, particularly in the South. And you find the gap, for example, in the South between black and white wages shrinks significantly during that period of time, which enables a lot of African Americans to move out of poverty uh, during that period. You also had the beginnings of the women's movement during that period. So women were moving into jobs that were not previously attainable and moving into higher wages, both of which also helped the lot of women move out of, out of the, uh, the poverty levels. You had a period of sustained economic growth, which meant higher wages generally, which tended to lift people out of poverty. And you also had a significant amount of philanthropic giving during that period as well, all of which had an impact on poverty rates. Uh, regardless of, of how you want to look at it though, what you find is that in the last 20 years or so, you're not getting a very big incremental increase in terms of how you're getting people out of poverty and that's because the programs we have by and large are not designed to deal with the big problems that we have in terms of how you get out of poverty. We know by and large that the way to get out of poverty, number one, finish school. If you drop out of high school you're going to be poor. If you're, if you're a college graduate you're probably not. Uh, about half of all high school dropouts live below the poverty level. Relatively few people who are college graduates do. So education reform becomes a huge issue. Number two, as we've heard Repeatedly already today, if you're not married, don't get pregnant. Not a moral judgment, it's simply an economic one. You're five times more likely to live in poverty if you give birth out of wedlock than if you wait until you're married. Number three, get a job, any job, and stick with it, as we've heard before. Less than 3%, think about that, less than 3% of people who work full-time live below the poverty level. Uh, Even part-time work can cut your rate of uh, likelihood of being in poverty almost in half. So getting people into jobs work in effect works. And number four we need to find ways to contribute to savings in these programs. In essence what we have done over the last 50 years with the war on poverty is we've made poverty somewhat less uncomfortable. It's no longer quite as much destitution as there was at one time, the sort of poverty that existed when Michael Harrington wrote about the other America, the, the, the age in which about a third uh, of people who lived in poverty didn't have electricity or running water, that, that sort of thing is largely gone. The huge malnutrition that existed at one time, we, we've done a pretty good job of dealing with that sort of material poverty. But what we haven't enabled recently, in particular, is enabled people to get out of poverty, to rise to that next step, that next rung on the ladder. We haven't increased economic mobility. We haven't enabled the children of people who are growing poor to be less likely to be poor when they grow up. What we haven't done is created the foundations on which people can become all that they can be, to rise to that level you heard earlier of being fully actualized people, able to take advantage of all their abilities and all their talents and rise to what they want to do. Instead, what we've done is spend more and more money and gotten less and less in exchange for that money. So what I would like to suggest is that as we look back over the last 50 years, we could say that maybe, maybe not, we had some early success, but we're no longer having that success, and maybe we should try something different, something that doesn't involve uh, 126 federal programs and a trillion dollars of taxpayers' money. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.
2: Good morning. Pleased to have an opportunity to talk about poverty, which is so complex. Uh, There's so many people who are in poverty for so many different reasons. Um, And it really isn't useful to lump it all together as if it's the same thing. I am sure that we all care as much as I do about people. And we don't want to see people getting their food out of the garbage or living under bridges and highways uh, are suffering in ways that you just wouldn't expect in a place like the United States of America. And so I begin with that assumption so that we're going to provide for the basics. And we are going to pay attention to the fact that people are there for different reasons. Sometimes people just fall on hard times because of an illness in their family, because of a personal illness. Sometimes they have to take care of somebody else, an elderly parent. Sometimes people for really no fault of their own, they lose the job and they need to have time to get back on their feet and they need to be supported while they're doing that. But we have a number of people in this country who are persistently poor, whose families are in danger of generational poverty. And we need to think about that problem separate from the other problems because that really is one of the most troubling things because it flies in the face of the image we have of ourselves as a nation, as being a land of opportunity. So I want to focus there, but I hope that you all join me in understanding that poverty is complex. There are many reasons why people are there. The durations are very different and different strategies are required for different things. I used to be a lawyer. Um, I guess one never really gives it up unless you turn it in, but I haven't practiced it in some time. One of the last cases that I did had to do with the state of California requiring that you have automobile insurance in order to keep your driver's license. People called me up. I worked at a public interest law firm and said that they really felt this was unfair. They couldn't get automobile insurance at a decent rate in the communities where they lived because those communities were redlined, literally. The insurance companies would draw a red line around communities, and either they wouldn't sell you automobile insurance, or you had to pay an awful lot to get it. It Seemed unfair. People were losing their licenses on top of all the other problems of being poor and living in a poor community. So I brought a lawsuit on their behalf saying that it was unconstitutional, that it was a due process violation, that it was a taking of a driver's license based on your ability to get insurance, which was not governed by due process. Really creative argument got all the way to the California Supreme Court. They were really interested in it. I felt like I was playing tennis. They were so engaged, just bouncing uh, questions over at me. In the end, I lost that case. Because um, being poor is not a suspect category, and therefore I didn't prevail. But I was on the radio talking about it and trying to help people to understand it. And after I'd gone through this long explanation and told stories about what it was like to live in these communities, the first call I got was, well, why don't those people just move someplace where it's not so expensive to get automobile insurance? Oh, my goodness. It's like I said, I wanted to critique myself. Did I not explain this well enough? Do people not understand that for so many people that is not an option? And I think that's what we haven't been paying enough attention to, which is that in this country where you live is a proxy for opportunity. Where you live determines whether or not your children have a good school right there in the neighborhood. Where you live determines whether or not there are jobs close by or if there is public transit to get you to a job that might exist someplace in the region. Where you live determines that if you're lucky enough to own a home, whether you have any value in it that you can pull out for an emergency or to pursue an opportunity. Where you live even determines how long you live. You tell me your zip code and I can pretty accurately tell you your life expectancy and in the area where I live in California the life expectancy is about 15 years higher in the Berkeley Hills than it is in the West Oakland flatlands. Where you live determines how well you live while you live in terms of asthma, obesity, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension. Where you live is a proxy for opportunity and if you live in a community of concentrated poverty your prospects are not good at all. One of the things I think that struck me most looking at the work of Raj Chetty, looking at social mobility, is the areas where you saw the least social mobility was a complete overlay with the areas where you had some of the greatest racial discrimination, which hurt not just those people who were black, it hurt everybody. We end up underinvesting in places and that causes us to underinvest in people. Place matters. Place matters a lot, and it matters a lot when you're thinking about poverty. And when we have thought about place in this nation, our strategies have been too narrow, and they have reinforced the very problems I've been describing. When we think about how hard it is to live in a low income community of poverty we think about building more attractive healthier housing in that community next to that bad school with no public transportation with no opportunity to be able to have a home that's going to appreciate without asking whether or not there's a grocery store in that community where you can get fresh fruits and vegetables we really need to think about the power of investing in place with an eye toward what it is people need in order to improve their circumstance. So we need a new place-based strategy that thinks about the region, not thinking that you can solve poverty within the four corners of a poor neighborhood, but to think about it in relationship to the region, where the jobs in the region, how do you connect people to those jobs, both by training and by transportation, We need to make sure that all schools are good schools and prepare children to be able to reach their full potential. We need to make sure that children start school ready to learn and healthy. You know all of this. If you think about the communities that you grew up in, those things existed. And if they didn't exist, you had a tougher time trying to reach your full potential. But if you live in a community of concentrated poverty where almost no one is working, where the natural job networks, and that's how people get jobs, don't exist, you're going to see a very tough time. We are learning a lot about these place-based efforts and how to make sure that uh, uh, that they can inform strategies. I say inform strategies rather than replicated because it's not exactly replication that we need to do. We need to tease out principles of what works and use those principles to inform strategies. One of the things that we've been very involved in at PolicyLink is the Promise Neighborhoods program inspired by the Harlem Children's Zone. You all know the Harlem Children's Zone, and I'm sure you've all been inspired by it. And uh, if you are a, a lover of it, one of the things that you perhaps worry about is how will neighborhoods all across the country have access to that kind of money to produce those kinds of startling results Well, the Promise Neighborhoods Institute attempts to answer that question by, one, looking at the Harlem Children's Zone and teasing out what the principles are. Taking a neighborhood strategy and deciding that all the children who live in that neighborhood are going to get the supports that they need. Building a staff that really is of high quality and understands how to utilize data, how to measure progress, how to be held accountable. Using data for continuous improvement. If you're going to set out to do something, set out to measure it and measure how you're doing all along the way. Building community at the same time that you're creating a program to focus on children, those principles or what the Promised Neighborhoods Institute tries to take into other communities and to say that there are already resources in your community that are not focused on producing these results for children. So while you may not have access to the philanthropic dollars that the Harlem Children's Zone had access to, if you build the right kind of collaboration, if you develop the right results that you want to focus on, you can use existing resources to get there by making them more effective and more targeted. And that program is starting to produce results. In Berea, Kentucky, in uh, Minneapolis, we are seeing children increase their readiness for school based on these collective efforts that are making a difference. We also are seeing that if we look hard at communities and think about what it is that's needed there, they can be produced. One of the things, if you travel around this country and you find yourself in an area of a city and you can't find a grocery store, I guarantee you, you are in a low-income black community. And what does that mean for that community? One, it means that it's very hard to have a healthy diet. But second, it means that the young, the young people in that community are not getting early jobs at grocery stores, perhaps the way many of you did. It means that there's not an anchor institution in that community where other entrepreneurial activities can find that foot traffic is coming, where there's something to bring people into that community. It means that people in that community feel very disrespected. It means that it's hard for the elderly people who are there to get on a bus or use some of their grocery money to take a taxi and go someplace else. Well, we figured out how to solve that problem. Pennsylvania did it for us, the Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative. Governor Rendell in 2004 put $30 million into an economic stimulus package that has now been able to leverage over $180 million. They have over 90 grocery stores that exist that didn't exist or corner stores that now carry fresh fruits and vegetables or farmers markets. 500,000 people now have neighborhood access to fresh food in their neighborhoods that they did not have before, and 5,000 jobs have been created. Using that extraordinary model, By the way, the tagline for PolicyLink is lifting up what works. Try to find things that work and get them in the policy and move them forward. Using that extraordinary model, we now have the Healthy Food Financing Initiative funded by Treasury and uh, the uh, Department of Agriculture. And it has gotten hundreds of millions of dollars on the streets. And there are real programs going on in this country, in community, helping communities to have what's needed. And so... In conclusion, I want to recap. One of the things that I think is that we need to stop arguing and debating about whether we need to spend government dollars to help people get out of poverty. We do need to help people be comfortable and not suffer if they are poor. We need to spend those dollars. We also need to understand that people are in poverty for different reasons and we need to be able to target resources where they are needed. We need to understand that many people who are poor are moving through poverty and with just a little help or a little time will get back on their feet. But we are becoming a nation in which the majority will be people of color very soon. The majority of babies born in this country have been of color since 2012. In four more years, the majority of all children 18 and under will be of color. By 2030, the majority of the young workforce will be of color. And by 2043, the majority of all people in this country will be black, Latino, Asian, Native American, or other people of color. The notion of making sure that people who are of color are not disproportionately living in persistent poverty continues to be a moral challenge. You are not a moral nation if you are comfortable with that, but it has become an economic imperative and a national imperative. If we can't do something about that, the future of the nation is not good. People, if people of color don't become the middle class the middle class will be feeble and we need to focus on the places where people live as well as all the other things we need to do so that every community is a community of opportunity. Thank you.
3: Uh, hello, thank you uh, to the Cato Institute for having me here. Um, it always is a little bit of a risk to talk for 10 to 12 minutes um, about the arcane issues of poverty measurement and and show a bunch of data, but um, I'm nothing if not a risk taker, so that's what we're going to do. When we sort of pose the question of of did we win the war on poverty, um, did we lose the war on poverty, or are we somewhere in between, um, I sort of take that as an empirical question, and we've alluded to the fact that um, we do spend a lot of money on programs for low-income families, for low-income individuals, um, and the official poverty rate uh, today is, is not much uh, lower than, than what it was in, uh, in the 1960s. Um, and Lyndon Johnson you know, famously declared war on poverty. Uh, the hope was by now that we would have eliminated poverty in this country and um, it, you know, you, we, we think about the sort of famous quote by Ronald Reagan um, in the 80s uh, where he sort of said, we, we waged a war on poverty and, and poverty won. Um, and, and pointed to these trends in official poverty statistics to, to sort of make that claim. Um, but in, in recent work, uh, my colleagues here at Columbia and I um, have tried to reexamine trends in poverty using a, a more accurate and more improved measure of poverty to really sort of assess the, the progress that we may or may not have achieved. Um, and I'll tell you just a little bit briefly um, about why the official poverty measure is such a poor benchmark um, for assessing trends over time. Um, it was developed in the 1960s. It was based on the cost of a, a, a low-cost diet at the time and the, the idea that people spent about a third of their income um, on food. So we essentially took that cost of that low-cost that, that low, low diet, multiplied it by three, and that's been our poverty line ever since. Um, so you can imagine a, a, you know, any number of ways in which that, um, that, that has become a flawed statistic over time. Um, another another a key flaw in that, that statistic is that it only counts um, people's cash income uh, when assessing, you know, people's resources relative to their needs, um, and that was a reasonable assumption back in the 1960s when, when most, uh, when, when most of people's incomes actually came in cash and when most government programs took the form of cash assistance. Um, that's become increasingly. Um, less true over time. And I should say it's pre-tax cash income. So when we think of the uh, the anti-poverty programs that we have today, a lot of them come through the tax system and a lot of them come in the form of non-cash benefits. Um, so if you really want to assess trends in poverty over time and you're only counting you know, two-thirds of the types of uh, uh, resources that are targeted toward low-income families, you're going to be missing out. Um, so. Uh, these are not new uh, understandings that, that we thought of here at Columbia. I mean, uh, there are decades of research on uh, poverty measurement and and ideas on how to improve the measure of poverty. Um, and uh, those have been floating around you know almost since the poverty measure was born. Um, but it took decades for the government to be in to actually um, you know pioneer and release year to year an improved measure of poverty, which is called um, the supplemental poverty measure. So, the supplemental poverty measure um, aims to sort of ameliorate uh, some of the problems that I just outlined. Uh, it's been released since 2009 by the Census Bureau. And the big improvement, as I said, is it counts these uh, post tax income, it counts these non cash benefits, it sets a more realistic poverty threshold based on contemporary expenditures on um, a core basket of goods, not just that cost of that low that cost food diet in the 1960s. Um, but the SPM is not available historically, so you can really only assess trends in poverty from 2009 to 2013, um, which is not really a useful um, um, uh, data, data set in order to assess the long term trends and, and, and assess the war on poverty. Um, so, my colleagues here at Columbia Liana Fox, Irv Garfinkel, Neeraj Kaushal, and Jane Waldfogel, Um, we took it upon ourselves to try to estimate um, an SPM-like measure to the best of our ability, given available data back to the 1960s, and really assess what have been the long-term trends in poverty um, when you use an improved measure. Um, The estimates I'm going to show you Um, just to to nerd out for a second here, are based on what we call an anchored supplemental poverty measure. So an anchored means we we set it in time um, based on contemporary living standards, and then we take that poverty line and we um, estimate it back in time with with changes in inflation. There are people who would argue for a more relative poverty line that would change with living standards. This is designed to make it more comparable to official poverty statistics, where you have a a set poverty line and a set benchmark that you're assessing changes in income um, against over time. So, um, with that said, let me just show you um, some statistics. Um, So this is trends in both the official and the supplemental poverty rates from 1967 to 2012. Um, and the, the blue line uh, on the bottom sort of shows you the conventional story that we think we know about about poverty trends in this country, um, where poverty was about 14% uh, in 1967, about 15% in 2012, doesn't look like much progress. When It turns out when you switch to the supplemental poverty measure, um, you see a, a substantial decline in poverty over time from about 26% in 1967 to 16% today. And I should say, these poverty lines, they're higher. Um, the supplemental poverty line is higher in 2012 than the official poverty line because it's based in contemporary living standards. You could anchor this poverty line at any point in time. So we've also experimented. We anchor it in 1960s living standards, which would be more directly comparable to the um, official poverty line, you see that same drop. You see a drop from about 19 percent to about 10 percent. So the level will change depending on what you uh, consider the, an adequate level of needs, but this trend is, 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 um, is consistent regardless. You see about drop in poverty about 40 percent. Um, and this just shows you, uh, for children, the same sort of figure. Um, again, you see this big substantial drop in, in child poverty over time, from about 29 percent to about 19 percent. Um, For working age, less dramatic drop, and this is is, uh, people age 18 to 64, less dramatic drop, but you still see about a 25% drop in poverty over time from about 20 to 15. And then um, this is the elderly, the the folks 65 and above. Um, And regardless of the measure, you see a big decline in elderly poverty. This is well understood um, in the poverty community, um, widely regarded as uh, uh, tied to uh, Social Security. Um, the supplemental poverty rates are higher for the elderly population. That's because these poverty measures also make some other changes, trying to include um, people's medical needs and medical expenses in the measure of poverty. We won't dwell on that. Um, but then uh, here is sort of the, the key figure um, that that I like to show, where we show um, what we call the effect of taxes and transfers, all these government programs, on the poverty rate. So the red line. Is, um, is a poverty rate based on pre-tax, pre-transfer income. You can think of it almost like market income, the types of uh, resources that people get from um, their jobs, their investments, et cetera. Um, and you can see that uh, much of the, the decline in poverty that we've seen since 1960s um, is, is, is a result of including the value of these, um, of these government, progr- government programs and transfers. Um, And that's grown over time. So whereas uh, government programs and transfers only reduced poverty um, by a small percentage in 1967, um, by today we're talking about 11 or 12 percentage points. Um, And you would miss that if you just looked at trends in official poverty statistics. Um, Just as sort of dramatic, when you look at child poverty rates, so here again the red line is pre-tax, pre-transfer poverty. Um, the blue line is uh, after you count taxes and transfers. And here you see this pretty big divergence, especially after the 1990s. Um, and I should say, the, the 1990s is sort of a remarkable period, um, both under the official measure and the supplemental pop, uh, measure, where, where poverty rates are really declining. Um, and that, that's usually thought of as a combination of, of, of three things, which is um, the, the, the you had a booming economy in the 1990s, number one, so you had plentiful jobs. Um, uh, And you had the Earned Income Tax Credit really substantially um, expanded in the 1990s, so a real effort to make work pay um, for low-income families. Um, And then you had Welfare Reform, too, which was uh, uh, designed to promote work as well. So you had sort of a push factor in Welfare Reform, a pull factor in um, the Earned Income Tax Credit, and then uh, a a roaring economy in the background. Um, And then we also tend to look at uh, deep poverty, um, which deep poverty is usually uh, um, a measure of uh, falling under fifty percent of the poverty line, so it's a, a more extreme form of disadvantage. If you think of the poverty line, as, a well, uh, the official poverty line would be around 12000 for for a single person. You know, this would be five, six thousand. Um, the supplemental, of course, is a, is a little bit of a higher poverty line. Um, but here you can see um, what's remarkable about this is that the, after you include the um, the the value of all sort of taxes and transfers. Um, the deep poverty, we've, we've held the deep poverty line to pretty much uh, 5% pretty consistently since the 1960s. And that's regardless of um, economic cycles, you know, you can see the uh, when you look at pre-tax, pre-transfer poverty here, you can see a substantial rise in deep poverty in the recessions in the 1980s um, and the recessions of the 1990s, as well as the Great Recession there at the end. Um, but regardless of those economic cycles, um, deep with government programs and transfers have sort of held deep poverty rates at bay. Um, and similar story for child poverty. You see a little, uh, deep, child deep poverty, I'm sorry. Um, you see a rise in child deep poverty in the recessions of the 80s, but again, pretty flat rates overall over time. And um, as with the overall poverty rates, I think another remarkable feature here is is what's happened in the Great Recession. Um, so the Great Recession, widely regarded as, some, as one of the biggest uh, economic downturns since the Great Depression, um, but both poverty rates and deep poverty rates have been um, pretty flat as measured by the supplemental poverty rate. Um, and that stands in contrast to some of the earlier recessions like, uh, that, are, that are comparable, such as in the early 1980s, um, um, where poverty rates did rise. Uh, I can go back to that if you want. Uh, there you go. I mean, you can see even after including the taxes and transfers in the, in the recessions of the 80s, you saw substantial rises in poverty. Not so true um, with the Great Recession. So um, I hope I haven't bored you too much. I think the, the bottom line is that when we, uh, when we measure poverty appropriately, we see that the investments um, that have been made actually have um, translated into reductions in poverty. It's definitely not a story um, that we've solved poverty or that we've completely won the war on poverty um, by any means. I will just note that a lot of the programs that we're newly counting in these measures, such as the food stamp program, housing assistance, um, Uh, WIC, school meals. We call them anti-poverty programs, and they are to some extent, but we have to keep in mind also that they are designed to achieve specific goals, um, not always of which is to directly reduce poverty among the poor. So um, for instance, food stamps, it definitely provides um, income that helps people get by, um, but its main goal is to reduce hunger, right, and its main goal is to reduce uh, food insecurity. The WIC program barely moves poverty lines, but it's not intended to. It's intended to help um, you know, pregnant women and women with young children afford milk, eggs, high calorie um, uh, uh, food in order to, uh, to ensure that, that children have adequate nutrition. And you can debate the goals of that program and whether it's effective in doing so, um, but it's, it's important to recognize that it is not um, specifically an anti-program- anti-poverty program and shouldn't be held accountable for moving people above or beyond uh, the the poverty line, even though it does. Um, So thank you. So
4: it's hard to go last, but I've got, I hope I can uh, finish up strong. Uh, I'm Robert Doerr, and I want to thank Cato and Columbia for inviting me here. I'm a a New Yorker temporarily residing in Washington now with the American Enterprise Association uh, Institute, but um, I greatly miss New York. I was the Commissioner of Social Services for Michael Bloomberg, and it's very good to be back in a really great city. So let me begin by saying, I've got six points, and I I will go through them as rapidly as I can. Let me begin by saying, just in answering the question, uh, we've had some successes and we've had some failures, and so I think the conclusion is that it's incomplete. The war on poverty still has some work to be done, but some progress has been made. And I, I guess I would begin by associating myself with the successes. So elderly poverty, clearly significantly dropped, great, great achievement there. We've reduced uh, poverty for, for senior citizens. Secondly, I think in the area of life expectancy at birth, great increases there. I think the uh, anti-poverty programs associated with Medicaid Medicare have had great increases in helping uh, increase the health status of all Americans. We've still got work to be done there, but there's progress there. And then finally, on the sort of uh, poverty issue, I want to strongly associate with you with, with, with the work of Bruce Meyer and James Sullivan, who have written about consumption poverty, another way of measuring poverty measure that looks really at what people have and are able to spend for their needs. And I think that is a more effective measure, in my judgment, for a national statistic, is not very good for local statistics, and for as a local administrator, that's a problem. But for, for the national numbers, I think consumption really is a better way of seeing what people really have and are able to afford and spend. So, um, very great paper, Winning the, War on po- Winning the War, Poverty from the Great Society of the Great Recession, Bruce Meyer and James Sullivan, really outstanding work. Um, and here is their chart, and, and it's, uh, it's interrupted, but you see consumption poverty back in 1960, very high, dropping all the way down to less than 5%. Uh, significant achievement, largely due to transfer programs, and, and the extent to which the Earned Income Tax Credit, food stamps, a more effective measurement of the uh, Uh, um, the uh, consumer uh, uh, inflation rate Um, and I have to say that comes to my second point. So we've made great progress on material well-being in some areas and that's a good progress but but one of the things that I always get distracted about this and it's ironic for me is it's always tied to the war on poverty, the great society, we always see President Johnson and for me that's kind of you know interesting my father worked for president johnson he was the assistant attorney general in charge of civil rights in the nineteen sixties and so he i'm sort of a a baby of the great society in some ways But a lot of this improvement and a lot of this uh, progress we've made has nothing to do with the policies of President Johnson, especially with regard to low-income Americans. A lot of the progress happened much later, with the Earned Income Tax Credit, with the expansion of food stamps. And really, there's where I think we made uh, significant gains. And to sort of tie it all back to President Johnson, I think, is a mistake. And that, that reminds me, and this is a New York story, of why we came to New York as a family. My father worked in the Justice Department. He had worked for Robert Kennedy. uh, And then he had stayed after uh, President Kennedy was killed and was working in the Justice Department up until 1967. And then Robert Kennedy was a little bit disappointed in the way the Great Society programs were going. Overly centralized, very federally focused, a lot of money, not a lot of community involvement. And Robert Kennedy came to my father and said, I want to do something different. I want to do it in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. I want to do it in a community place-based effort. And, and that was a, a reaction to, I think, what was going on. And I should also say that while we, we, he worked in Bedford-Syphons in the 70s and 80s, some progress was made on some blocks for some people, but the overriding force of the welfare entitlement system that was providing cash assistance uh, without requirements of work or a personal responsibility, I think, set us backwards during that period. And it really wasn't until welfare reform in the 1990s that we began to make progress. So uh, when we talk about the war on poverty, the successes we have, let's not all say they're all related to LBJ and great society. A lot of important innovations happened much subsequent to that uh, that have helped improve material well-being. Now, not so good on some other things. And this, let's bring me, before I get to these other areas where we seem to have problems, I just want to say something about material well-being. It's a good thing. That we have allowed, uh, we've improved, improved the bottom of people's resources, and we've raised people's material well-being. That That is a good thing. We want to live in a society that cares for the least fortunate in that way. But it can't possibly have been all we wanted to accomplish. It can't possibly have been the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was something close to self-sufficiency, something close to a flourishing, earned success environment where people are working and earning their own success not uh, dependent for significant portions of the resources on government. So while I agree that we've made some progress on material well-being we have not done so well in the area of self-sufficiency. And let me just say one other thing about self-sufficiency. Who among us is self-sufficient? Not very many. So I don't aspire to complete self-sufficiency. I can accept Work supports government uh, supports for low-income Americans that can shore up wages. But we've got to do better than we're doing now. I think too many Americans are not working and not earning their own success, and that is a problem. And so one area where this is clear is in work rates for men, ages 25 to 54. This is an historic decline. This is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for families. It's not a good thing for men. It's not a good thing for, for minority uh, communities. This is a problem. We have to face up to this. This is contributing to uh, uh, other factors in terms of raising children, and that I think is a a significant concern. So material well-being is not enough. We also want human flourishing. We want people working and earning their own success. Work rates for men dropping in this rate are not good. Um, Secondly, um, and I want to associate myself uh, with uh, our keynote speaker, John, thank you very much. That was a very compelling speech. You raised important issues and really made me think about a number of things. But this is the the sort of very well-known percent non-marital births by race, and it shows everybody's uh, uh, going in the direction that I don't think is healthy for children. Um, I don't want to lecture. I don't want to ask people, uh, train people in getting married. I don't want to impose my values on anybody, I promise. I don't want to do that. But I do want to raise children well. I want to raise children well. So they are prepared to compete in our American society. And I think it's just true that if you have two parents there to help and to hold and to nurture and to, and to, and to, and to, to raise, children do better. And so this is a concern, the extent to which so many of Americans, now 40% of all uh, births are non-marital and uh, o- over 70% for blacks and Hispanics. So we have a real issue there. This is. Uh, and great society. I'm not one of those who believes that government transfer programs cause this. I don't know exactly what causes. There are a lot of factors, but I can say it's helped to finance it and it's it's supported. So that is a concern. We need to be thinking about that. And then this has also contributed to, I think, a continued gaps in um, uh, earnings at medium wages uh, and uh, between uh, whites all Hispanics and blacks. As you can see large gaps in median individual earnings 1975-2013 not getting really narrower and that's that's not right. We need to bring our country together and so here is clearly not in my opinion a success of great success society policies. Secondly race gaps in poverty similarly. Uh, African-Americans are the highest, Hispanics uh, and then all and then whites lower. We need to narrow these gaps and I think that's a, a, something that we need to be concerned about. And I believe that these gaps are related to the non-marital birth rate gaps, which I showed you before. And I think that there has been some coming together on that with regard to right and left, and I hope that continues. In New York City, again, we, uh, there's only so much credibility Republicans and people on the right have with c- all of our communities in the city. We need everybody talking about what's uh, 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 in the best interest of children uh, as they uh, grow up so that's that now the last couple points I want to make that are a little bit different but but that need to be made this is a huge one so this is uh... this goes back to michael's uh, sort of total spending the trillion dollars of investment we've made It's in, in, in almost six hundred billion dollars the blue there is medicaid okay the, the, everything else is below that here you see the extent to which our investments in low income americans are dominated by Medicaid. Uh, I often told the story that when I was up in Albany, when I would go testify on behalf of the various programs that I had in my agency, T- TANF, childcare, food stamp benefits, and it was on one of those, and I'd go up to Albany, it would be me and, and um, some you know, activists and advocates, very scruffy, not very well-financed advocates for low-income Americans, and that's who'd be waiting to testify before the powers that be in Albany. When I went up to talk about Medicaid, it was me and the most powerful lobbyists in Albany and New York State government. The protection that we have uh, and the effort we make in Medicaid absorbs a lot of spare dollars that I think would be better if we could find some savings there that we could invest in other programs for low-income Americans. So this is a, a, a significant problem. And I also need to say there's good news here. Um, Healthcare spending has not risen as rapidly uh, in the last several years as it as it had in the past. That was really beginning to bankrupt states and and uh, the government. That's good, and I have to make a partisan point here. in a little bit is I'm getting the feeling that Democrats are a little better at controlling healthcare spending than Republicans, and I think it's because, um, well, I don't know exactly what it's because. But but the fact of the matter is is the healthcare industry seems to be. Uh, more effective at limiting efforts on the part of HHS to control, uh, monitor uh, uh, health care spending uh, uh, more effective with Republicans than they are with Democrats. I also want to uh, uh, recommend to you a series of stories in the Wall Street Journal over the last six months to a year about looking at data concerning healthcare spending and ways in which we can call attention to the extent to which it's irrational sometimes and fraudulent. And so my view is here is an area where when you talk about welfare spending and you talk about the big number, know that a lot of it is Medicaid. And by the way, Medicaid spending does not really go into the back pockets of poor Americans. It goes into your hospital and your doctors and your health insurance plan. Um, So it's a little bit, uh, uh, in my opinion, not exactly accurate to act like this is all part of the great government transfer program to the poor. So that's my fifth point. Finally, what is to be done? So my view is that um, the welfare reform revolution that took place in 1994 was very good for one program in American uh, public policy, the TANF program, because it brought a work requirement or work expectation from people seeking assistance. And I think we need that in all of our programs that provide assistance. A work requirement or expectation. I don't want to force I don't want to demand, I don't want to hold food stamp benefits back, but we need to be talking to people about getting into employment because employment and earnings is the way people escape poverty. And so I think the, act, the fact that we've had over these years, these work, these work support programs that were intended to supplement work have now become a, um, allow a certain replacement of work, we need to talk about that. So we need more work requirements and more programs. I believe in work supports. I think given the global economy, we're going to be in a situation where we need to shore up low wages with forms of assistance that make work pay. I think that has had a huge effect in reducing poverty, and we should uh, keep doing that. I think we need to talk about families. We need to talk about the importance of two parents raising kids together jointly effectively. I think John was right about that. I think uh, uh, contraception availability is important, but so is education. So is being clear about the facts, about how hard it is, what an uphill battle it is to raise children successfully without a committed other partner there to help you do it. And I think we need to talk about that a lot. I think it's a false promise to say to single parents and to young kids today, government will solve that problem because government will not solve that problem. Communities, families, other parents need to solve that problem. Finally, we need to increase earnings for men. I think that we programs that get men into the workforce more are very important. I also think we need to talk about skills-based immigration reform. Now here, I'm really getting into sort of a touchy issue. In New York, we are big believers. Immigration has made the city as great as it possibly can be. But it just seems to me that um, the competition at the low end of the wage scale for jobs is tough sometimes. And if we have immigration policies that Are not skills-based that aren't trying to bring people into the country who have high skills, and instead are sort of ambivalent about just having you know uh, any uh, any kinds of of skills come in. You are forcing competition on people at the low end of the wage scale that makes things more difficult. So I think we need. I also believe that immigration reform will significantly increase growth, which is my last point. We need to promote four percent growth. I got. I'm done. I'm almost done, Ron. You see, I go last. All right, so I'm done. Uh, that's it. Those are my thoughts. We've made some successes. We've got a lot of work still to be done. Um, and thank you for having me. All
0: right, so. So we started eight minutes late, we're going to end eight minutes late, and y'all are going to have a 15-second break, so I hope you enjoy that. (laughs)
3: All right, I'm only going to
0: ask one question uh, to leave maximum time for audience questions. I'm going to tell you, if I were in this audience and I were not an expert in poverty, I would be pretty confused, because we're using all kinds of different measures and so forth. So I, I want to give you six propositions that I think come out of all these presentations, and then I want the members of the panel to disagree with the one that they like the least, okay? The first one is the official poverty rate, the one you see everywhere, is flawed and should be ignored for most purposes. The second is that government programs, all taxes and transfers, cut poverty substantially, maybe by as much as half under some measures. Third, that measures based on, think about this, consumption, what people actually consume, rather than their earnings. All the measures we've talked about, except Myers and Sullivan, are based on earnings. Measures based on consumption show much lower poverty rates than measures based on income, which means people have more than you think they have based on their income. Fourth, the recession did not increase poverty rates very much, if at all, which suggests that government programs stepped in. It wasn't just poverty programs. Unemployment insurance played a huge role, and as always, Social Security played a role. Fifth, programs have purposes other than redressing poverty. So you can't measure the success of our means-tested programs only by looking at poverty rates. They have other purposes. This is a point that Chris made. And finally, and I think very disappointingly, it's good that poverty rate has fallen among the elderly, and it ought to because we spend so much money on the elderly, but it's highest among children. It has been for years and years and years, in Western societies are probably the first time we've had lower poverty rates among the elderly than among children, uh, and a lot of people think maybe our priorities are a little misplaced and we're, this is going to be a bigger question more and more every year because we're spending more and more on the elderly. So members of the panel, which way you want to
1: go? Start with you. All right, let me, let me take a partial objection then to your number two item about the government Uh, transfers, reducing poverty. I I don't think there's any dispute that they do, Uh, and I think that uh, Chris's slides showed that pretty well. That said, if you had had plotted spending against Chris's numbers, what you would have seen was not, again, much marginal increase. What you would have seen is spending accelerating, but the amount of decline, the the, the savings and poverty not increasing by anywhere near as much as as proportionally to the amount of spending you're getting. So we're we're clearly reaching a point of diminishing returns, if you will, where a marginal dollar of increased spending on 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 welfare programs is not necessarily bringing a marginal dollar decrease in in people living in poverty. So I I think in that sense, we can can argue about whether or not they were effective or the most effective approach in the past. I think there might have been more effective approaches back then. I think we'll hear about some of them uh, on the second panel. But even if you accept that as a given, what we find going forward is simply saying that, well, let's spend more is not necessarily going to get you more reduction in poverty, because I I don't think that that plays out.
2: What do you mean by other
0: purposes? Uh, People are healthier. People have better diets.
2: People have a better housing, have better housing. Mm I was going to take issue with that one because I want to make sure that poverty programs are helping people to get out of poverty. And some of the things that you've just highlighted help people get out of poverty. But to use poverty programs to manipulate things like marriage, et cetera, I I would be a little skeptical about. So I, I want to be cautious about the other purposes, but I think the things that lead to getting out of poverty are so complex that it's hard not to think about housing, health, education as you're thinking about the poverty programs. But that can be taken too far.
0: Chris,
3: um, yeah, well, just to touch back on the on the sort of uh, marginal reduction in poverty issue for every uh, every dollar spent on these programs. I mean, one of the things that even this improved measure of poverty doesn't deal with is, um, is Medicaid or Medicare. Um, and that's, you know, as, as Robert was is a huge chunk of the anti-poverty um, policy in this country. And um, it's a big debate in the poverty measurement literature of how you should treat medical needs and medical spending, um, because it clearly does have value to low-income families, um, but it doesn't help pay the rent, right? Um, and so. Uh, when we think about programs having you know, other purposes, Medicaid's a great example of that. It's designed to make sure that people have you know, access to healthcare um, uh, for their medical needs, not necessarily designed to improve their incomes, although you can imagine scenarios in which having health insurance you know, allows you to, uh, to uh, pursue you know, uh, economic uh, opportunities. Um, in terms of the one I would maybe... I, I didn't really disagree, I don't think, with many, <laughs> of the ones uh, that you stated. I mean, uh, for, for someone who, who likes the supplemental measure and, and thinks it's an improved measure of poverty, I would stick up for the official a little bit in that it does um, it does sort of track uh, overall trends in the economy pretty well. So you can sort of, um, you know, use it to, to, to understand that, even though it's a pretty flawed measure. Um, I You know, I won't do it here, but I could pick on consumption measures a little bit um, uh, too, but I'll, I'll stop there and turn it over.
4: And I would agree that of the six you said, the one that I, I would stick up for and is the, is the, uh, agree with the least is the first one. The official poverty measure is flawed in many ways. No question about it. We've worked on that in New York City. We've contributed to the changes that's taken place. But it still does measure over a long period of time the extent to which I think uh, people are able to earn their own success. And In that regard, it should be uh, something that should be watched.
0: I said for most purposes, but Um, All right, audience, please try to keep your questions brief and wait till the uh, mic comes and then give them your name. Right in front of you, right there.
2: Can somebody comment on minimum wage, which seems to, an increase in minimum wage seems to affect poor black youth completely disproportionately to the rest of the economy and the rest of the working people? I absolutely agree with you. We need to increase the minimum wage. I mean, we've had. You can't hear me? We absolutely need to increase the minimum wage. We've had a restructuring of the economy that people. Oh, well, I disagree with you. Uh, I think we absolutely need to increase the minimum wage because the very people that you have highlighted are ones that need to make a decent salary. And with the restructuring of the economy, I think it's going to be a combination of subsidizing income and increasing the minimum wage that's going to help those people who, ne- who have the lowest-paying jobs really participate. L-
1: let, me, let me give you the other side of that, which is that, first of all, it's a, the minimum wage is very poorly targeted when you look at trying to help low-income people. Less than 5% of the people making the uh, minimum wage are heads of household supporting a family uh... so you're not necessarily targeting the people who most need the help when you raise the minimum wage at the same time what you do do is crowd out the lowest for people with the lowest level of skills you crowd out those entry-level jobs that later can lead people up the ladder to, to higher wages we know that most people started minimum wage are not making minimum wage within a year they, they tend to move up the scale so what you do is you basically you help people sort of at the top ends of the poverty wrong because they get higher wages, which is true, but the people immediately below them, you're wiping out the opportunity and jobs for them simply because you can't require businesses to pay more than someone contributes in terms of that kind of growth.
2: But the people who are most likely to be making minimum wage are low-income women-heading families. And so you don't have a bunch of teenagers that we're talking about or people who are only working part-time because they only want to work part-time. We have a society in which people are going to work every day, making a minimum wage, not able to make ends meet. We've got to raise the minimum wage. Next question.
0: Right here in the back. Right there. Good. Isn't the whole idea behind Tell us your name, will you please Francis Menton, sometimes known as the Manhattan Contrarian website. Isn't the whole idea behind the design of the so-called anti-poverty programs to be absolutely sure that poverty as measured never, ever, ever goes down, even by a little, so that so that the programs can grow and the bureaucracy can grow?
4: Can I can I mention that? Can I talk about that for just a second? Um, Robert, so, let me caution you first. The audience liked the question. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I got it. So, so I'm, I'm an alumni of the bureaucracy. I, I work for the state and the city. And I often come into this question, uh, and I'm also a Republican, and I work for a right-of-center think tank. Um, the value of the programs and the dollars we spend are in benefits. They're not in bureaucracy. That's not where the money is. That's not where the government waste is. Uh, It's in these decisions to transfer money through the earned income tax credit or food stamp benefits directly to people. So I don't know that it's really fair to say we're going to save a lot of money by reducing the bureaucracy. The only way we're going to save a lot of money, in my opinion, is by controlling health care costs and in the expenditures we've committed to for senior citizens and reinvest them in things that get our economy growing and help low-income poor children. But bureaucracy in welfare programs it's a small part of the spending picture. Next yeah. question.
0: I'll uh, us go over here. Uh, in this row right here, the first person in the row. Wait till you get to the mic. Wait till you get to mic. Look the other way. Uh, thank you. Quick question. Almost all of you have referred to the uh, high unemployment rate of men. To what extent is that due to the fact that to a certain extent, more highly educated women are competing for men and are pu- literally pushing those men out of the job. You stumped the
4: panel. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of you. <laughs> you. you want to answer that?
3: Well, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen any good evidence that it's because women are pushing men out of work. Um, you know, I think there is, uh, you know, the Earned Income Tax Credit was a big pull for, for many families with children to enter the labor force and that those tended to be, uh, you know, single female headed households. So um, there's no, you know, similar type of program to make work pay for, um, for disadvantaged men without children. Um, and that's sort of some, some policy talk that's happening right now about can we design a similar type of program so that if you go to work you, you, you won't be poor, um, you know, that was sort of the impetus of, of the expansions of the Earned Income Tax Credit in the 1990s. Um, so if you did a similar kind of thing with people mm-hmm. without children, or uh, which, which are both women and men, it's not just, that, that it's not just men that don't have children, obviously, um, uh, then, then we might see substantial uh, improvements in, in labor force participation rates among men.
0: And by the way, last year Congress reached a big compromise on the Farm Bill and they set aside $200 million for 10 states to do demonstration programs to show how they could increase work among food stamp recipients. The number of people on food stamps is hugely greater uh, than the number of people on cash welfare. So that is a very important experiment. There'll be random assignment studies. We're going to learn a lot, and maybe we'll have another uh, welfare reform that'll focus mainly on in-kind benefits and not cash. Next question, right here, all the way to the end. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name's Hugh Campbell. Uh, I noticed that the. Decline in poverty kind of like stopped in the early 70s and then Had various degrees of increases to what degree has the trade deficit made fighting poverty more challenging?
1: The what deficit? The trade trade deficit. deficit. Trade de- yeah, I, I mean the reality is I, I think that we're not it's not the trade deficit as much as the skills deficit. What we're doing is we actually produce more manufactured goods than we ever have in history. It's just that we use less manpower in terms of producing them. And largely because we're going to automation and so on, not because we're moving, moving jobs overseas. The, re- the reality is that moving jobs overseas are mostly jobs that are used to sell overseas and so on. They're not, they're not necessarily reducing the American workforce uh, in that way. What we are finding, though, is that we, as, as we automate and move up to a higher skill environment, uh, you can't basically drop out of high school, go down and get a job at the local factory that's going to support your family. That, I mean, that was something you could do in the 1950s and 1960s, and that's gone. And it's never coming back. I mean, I mean we, people, politicians like to talk about, we're going to bring back all these manufacturing jobs. We're not. Uh, the reality is those jobs are gone forever, and what we need to do is put a premium on skills, which means we need more education reform. What we need to do is give more, you know, parents more control over education and so on in order to be able to move people up the skills ladder. In order to be able to compete in an economy that's just uh, just what it is today.
0: Okay. Next question. Let's go back over here. Uh, uh, what do you mean? Last waiting? one.
4: Last one.
0: No oh, more. last question. Okay. Oh, you want to stop now? No. We're getting the we're getting the cut. You signal. deprived us of three minutes. <laughs> Evidently, you're not bothered. Okay. So, thank you very much. We're on break. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Thank
0: you. I'll <laughs> read you. Starting,